Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of Opera After Dark. You know, I was thinking the whole time listening to that. What? I bet you there's a dubstep version of this. There definitely is a dubstep, or like some kind of of house, like house music, something. Trap version of Peter and the Wolf. Oh, there we go, trap version. There has to be. Oh yes. Well, for those of you who don't know what we're singing or talking about, I just sang for you a little excerpt from Peter and the Wolf. Go listen to it. It's so good. It's so good. It's probably one of my favorite orchestral works even though it's written mostly for children it is also great for adults doesn't matter so who who composed peter and the wolf sergey sergeyevich prokofiev who is who we're going to talk to uh, talk no to no <laughs> his, his name is sergey sergeyevich yeah i think that's a russian thing right i, I don't understand really? how the names get truncated or i don't understand like having read could, like anna karenina it's very confusing you could be piotr piotrovich i think I mean, so if he was russian i think it also yeah. has something to do with like family name versus your given name and then if like mm-hmm. you're the son of somebody nice oh is vich like a son of i have no idea i don't know, I don't know but that i do know that sense. It is very confusing how you arrive at the particular version of the name that ends up being the person's name. Right. I mean, his dad's name was Sergei um, Alexevich Prokofiev. Oh, that's definitely it. It's Sergei, son of Sergei. So maybe the middle name is like your dad's name plus Vich. So it'd be like your first name, then son of. Right. So his first name is Sergei, son of Sergei Prokofiev. Right. And his dad would be Sergei, son of Alexei Prokofiev. Maybe that's what that is. I would have fared pretty well in in that if that was like an American thing. Because then I, then I would be Kyle, son of Troy. Homewood. <laughs> Ooh. Like get that Trojan element in there. Kyle, Troyevich, Homewood. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Troyevich. Yeah, I like that. Any, anyway. Anyways, Prokofiev, Sergei Sergeyevich. Sergei Sergeyevich Prokofiev, he was a composer. <laughs> Indeed, he was. He was also Russian. Sort of, I don't know if I would call him traditional, but like a neoclassic kind of composer. What are his what's the, dates? What's the time frame? Yeah, dates on Prokofiev. Um, the dates for him, he was born in 1891, and he passed away in 1953. Oh. Wow. And I have a fun fact, not a fun fact, I have a fact about his death that I will tell you once we get to it. Oh, nice. Mm. I am almost embarrassed to say, but if you would have told me just like randomly, hey, guess Prokofiev's dates, Mm -hmm. I would have guessed something much earlier, I feel like. Not like much, much earlier, but I I, I don't know, would have thought he was born earlier in the 19th century. I do a really bad job of distinguishing and remembering Russian composers. It's not good. It's like my classic Schubert Schumann. Like, 
I can distinguish them, but I can't distinguish their works often. Did you learn about the Russian Five and Tchaikovsky? Yes, thanks to you. Because we talked about it. Their works sound like markedly different than Prokofiev. I know. know. Does it though? No, it does. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, very much. I've never claimed to be an excellent music scholar, but I am an enthusiast. Mm. You are. My enthusiasm will have to make up for my lack of distinguishing skills. So I'm curious, Kyle. No, do- <laughs> every time every time Naomi says that, I end up looking so foolish. No, I just want to know if if you are familiar with any other work by Prokofiev other oh. than Peter and the Wolf. I can't name one off the top of my head. I'm sure when you say one, I'll say, oh gosh, I'm such an idiot. Um, He wrote a lot of symphonies. He wrote a lot of ballets. Opera was sort of the genre that interested him the most. Though, I don't know if you would have heard the music from any of these, but you definitely would recognize the name. Hit me. What are some titles? Um, Well, War and Peace. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Love of Three Oranges. Oh, I forgot oh, about that one. Oh, yes. That actually... I had heard of. I've not listened to it, but right. um, that one pops up. The, the Gambler. Mm-hmm. You got to know when to hold and, what's, them. And he did write what's a ballet version. Know when of... to hold them. <laughs> <laughs> know when to walk away. Know when to run. Yes. It's an what? original Prokofiev. <laughs> original by Prokofiev. I mean, he did spend a fair amount of time in America. Ah. So he could have written that. Is it Kenny Rogers? <laughs> Oh god. What's the what's the Russian for the gambler? Uh, don't know. Or is it just often called the gambler? The transliteration is I G R O K. So like Igrok. Oh, okay. For Definitely the haven't heard that. Okay. So Anyhow. dude did quite a few things. So 1891. Prokofiev was born. His parents, his dad was a soil engineer. <laughs> sure. Cool. And his mom, <laughs> his mom was a very passionate amateur pianist. She actually went and studied at conservatory for a little while. So Prokofiev grew up listening to his mom play piano. Um, and because of that, Prokofiev became a huge fan of Beethoven. Mm. Um, and when he was five, Prokofiev composed his, uh, his first piece. And he, because he would practice with his mom. And so he wrote her a little piece that he called the Indian Gallop. Okay. And he became sort of very uh, obsessed with music. He started writing, I think, his first opera he wrote when he was 13. Um, And his parents were really sort of nervous about having him pursue a career in music, you know, for the obvious reasons. Um, (laughs) But there was a composer that heard him whose name is it Glier? G-L-I-E-R-E. I guess Glier. Glier. So Glier heard him and was like, you need to get this kid in school. And so he actually applied to join um, the conservatory in St. Petersburg. And he got through all his introductory exams. And they so they accepted him into the school. And he was like 14. A youngster. And his parents were like, no, nah, no, nah, we're not. No, his parents this. were like, okay. Um, oh, nice. That's good. So he went to school. Obviously, he was much younger than most of the people there. And apparently, he was kind of an arrogant little prick. Ah, um, I could see that. <laughs> I think he sort of, <laughs> in his youth, just 
was an arrogant little prick. Um, so he goes to the conservatory in St. Petersburg, studies with a bunch of teachers. One of them, uh, the most famous one, be Rimsky-Korsakov. Ooh. Wow. Um, Prokofiev did say later in his memoirs that he sort of tangentially sort of studied with Rimsky-Korsakov. Apparently, he took a class of his that had, like, a shit ton of people in it. Okay. For obvious oh. reasons. <laughs> right. And so he's like, I never really pursued him outside of that. And it's, like, a big regret of mine that I didn't try and have more, like, contact one-on-one contact with with rimsky korsakov yeah Um, i mean if you can get one-on-one contact with one of the russian five i mean come on like the father of the russian five nice kyle totally (laughs) (laughs) fact dropping boom boom mic drop um fun fact prokofiev also learned how to play chess when he was seven wow um and he played a bunch of chess champions and it became like his favorite hobby for the rest of his life so you can only imagine what this dude was like wow what do you have against chess no i'm just saying <laughs> compounded with everything else this guy was kind of a dick he, okay, he does he fine. does sound like he was quite arrogant yeah fair enough that seems to be what people i do really enjoy him. chess and it's it's like it's an area of of um I don't want to say an area of sadness in my life, but like I, for a period of time was like always trying to get my wife to play chess with me uh, and she won't play in fairness because she's just, she has hardly played. So she doesn't usually win. And so it's not a fun experience. That's fair. I'm, I, I love, feel like I I'm in chess. her camp. Like, yeah, me I too. remember being forced to learn how to play in elementary school and it was so frustrating because nobody actually taught me how, but we had to play like so many games a day. What? For chess, yeah, it was oh. ridiculous. And Where did you go to school? <laughs> Canada, Canada. <laughs> right. And one of my friends, I would tell him like, I need to finish my like five games today. So can you just do that thing where you like beat me in five moves? <laughs> He's like, okay. <laughs> That's so funny, Naomi, that you wouldn't just say, "Hey, let's play two games and say that we played five. No, no. Like you- <laughs> You had to be very honest about it. Oh, yes. my gosh. Yes, but uninvested. Clearly. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> we digress. Back to Prokofiev and his chess playing. Uh, so he graduates from the St. Petersburg Conservatory in 1909. Um, he has a degree in composition. Apparently, he didn't have great grades or anything like that, but he continued on in the school. He continued taking private piano lessons and private um, composition and conducting lessons. And the next year, 1910, his father passed away. And so his financial support sort of vanished. So he left school and he started composing. And most famously, in 1913, he wrote um, his first two piano concertos and he performed the latter one on a concert in 1913. And it caused a huge scandal because, you know, concerts caused scandals back Mm -hmm. then. (laughs) And according to one account, the audience left the hall and people were yelling to hell with this futuristic music the cats on the roof make better music what was so futuristic about it i don't know it was contemporary like contemporary for 1909 we think about 1909 who's writing music then puccini yeah strauss strauss Uh well you have like dvorak and dvorak schoenberg and bluebeard's castle comes out in 1910 or 11 there's a lot of there's a lot of change happening at the time, right? So fans of modern, no, back then it was known as modern music, uh, really liked it. Traditionalists thought it sounded like cats yelling on the roof. 
I mean, it's the same scenario today. There's the people that enjoy new opera and the people, or similar, er, and the people that can't stand it on principle. Well, let's listen to a little bit of it. Prokofiev is sort of like, everybody's a Philistine. I'm smarter than everybody. I'm leaving Russia. Russia has nothing for me. And he goes to Paris. Let me guess. Goes to Paris? He goes to Paris, and then he goes to London. Right. Um, There's a musicologist and critic named Alexander uh, Osofsky, who was a real fan of his, and he wrote like a letter of support that got Prokofiev to Paris, then to London. When he was in London, he met um, Sergei Diaghilev and started writing ballets for the Ballet Russe. Ballet Russe, most famously, are the people that put on the Rite of Spring. With Stravinsky. Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, you know, Mm -hmm. with the riot, the alleged riot. So Prokofiev (laughs) writes an opera for them called uh, Shoot, which I think translates to The Idiot in Russian. Ah. And they performed it, and it was a huge success. I think um, Ravel called it a work of genius. Stravinsky said it was the single piece of modern music he could listen to with any kind of pleasure. Mm. So Prokofiev and Stravinsky... Uh, we're kind of friends in that way that backstabbing composers are, like back in the day. Like Stravinsky would say things like, I think Prokofiev is the greatest living composer after me kind of thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they were buds, whatever. So, 
both both very very confident <laughs> right so that ballet's um premiere was in 1921 it i find it interesting that it, it feels like for a while for russians like if you felt like yeah i, I want to get out of russia or like i need to go experience other art like nine times out of ten you hear about people going to paris from russia to paris it's like a thing well i i feel like at the time at, like stravinsky did so well with that formula mm-hmm. right and there were at this particular moment paris was like a huge place to go absolutely right? right. like a center yeah. of musical life especially when it comes to ballet or dance music mm-hmm. but he's so it's 1921 so the ballet premiered in 1921 and prior to that prokofiev wasn't actually there for the premiere um so obviously historically world war one happened and oh. Prokofiev actually went back to Russia and he went back to the conservatory and started getting a degree in organ music because if he was a student, he couldn't get conscripted to fight. Whoa. <laughs> so nice. from, he becomes a, a student from like 1921 on for a couple of years. A little before that. A little before that. Yeah. Okay. Right, right. Because World War One was like, what, 1914 to 1918 or 19, something like that? Mm-hmm. Something like that. Yeah. And while he was there, he composed the opera The Gambler. He started composing a couple of symphonies. Um, some of those things didn't really get premiered, obviously, because shit's going down. Right. I like that he like he really had no intention to be an organist. Like, he just oh, no. went back yeah. to do his composing <laughs> thing. He also um, must have met his wife around this time. I know she was a singer. She was a singer. She had a stage name. Which was? Lena Lubera. There you go. Wow. <laughs> but I was just reading <laughs> about her. And I, she was kind of, I think for the time it was a little bit, she must have been quite exotic for Prokofiev, I guess. Because <laughs> yes, I imagine. her mother was from Ukraine and her father was from Spain. And basically like throughout her childhood, they like traveled the world quite a bit so they did live in russia for a time they also lived in switzerland and they lived in new york um until 1907 and she actually graduated from a public school in brooklyn oh no shit yeah public school number three brooklyn's public school number three ps3 ps3 (laughs) yeah and what about ps118 it's not ps118 couldn't tell you but then by 1919 she's back in russia and she's working and um, she got married to Prokofiev in 1923, and they must have met in and around the conservatory or while he was working. But their marriage did not last that long, or it wasn't that great. Nope. Um, shall I save it for you? No, go for it. Oh, okay. Well, all, all I know is that he ended up, ended up having an affair Ooh. with a writer that ended up being like the end of his marriage. It completely destroyed their marriage in and around 19... 19- 40 or 43 and then they separated but they never actually divorced but then much later on when when things got well a few years later when things started to get even more tense in Russia under the Soviet Union I'm pretty sure Prokofiev was like Lena I know that we don't really talk anymore and we're kind of estranged but you should get out of here we should we should get out of Russia and you should come with me like I'm gonna leave you should come too and she refused to go and she ended up being arrested for espionage, and she spent 20 years. Oh, uh, sorry, she was sentenced to 20 years in the gulag, and actually spent eight of them 
there before being released. Dang. But being released and then rehabilitated, quote unquote. So she had a real rough time. I wouldn't want to live for eight minutes in the gulag. No. No. That sounds horrible. Yeah. But to jump back. To go back. So So Prokofiev, Around the time that he met her. Right. So. Avoids the draft. About 1918, Prokofiev is like, I just have to get the fuck out of here. Um, So he goes to Moscow, gets his passport in order, and then just goes to San Francisco. What? (laughs) Moves to America. He's like, I'm Russia. I'm done with Russia. (laughs) I can't be here anymore. (laughs) Peace out. I'm gone. Hello, San Francisco. So he goes to San Francisco. And around that time, um, Rachmaninoff was also in America. And this whole idea of, like, this romantic idea of Russian composers fleeing to America and living in exile was, like, a big fucking thing. So Prokofiev, <laughs> then, he, like, started booking a bunch of concerts. Um, he had his debut solo concert in New York. And that led to a bunch of other engagements. And actually, he received a contract from the music director of the um, what was then known as the Chicago Opera Association Mm. to write an opera, um, which ended up being The Love of Three Oranges. So the premiere of Love of Three Oranges was in Chicago. What? I did not know that. Um, They commissioned a French opera? Well, Love for Three Oranges is in Russian. Oh, sorry. I thought it was in French. It has a Russian name, but it was written in French. Boom! A French okay. libretto based okay. on an Italian play. Oh. Um, it was an Italian Commedia dell'arte play. And so... So Kyle was right? Is that what you mean? I think so, but it's kind of unclear like what Prokofiev ended up using... And I'm not familiar with the opera. Without wanting to sound Prokofiev-ish. Go on. What? No, no, there wasn't any more to that. Oh. (laughs) I don't want to seem. I don't want to seem too arrogant or anything. No, no. It's known primarily by its French language title, but. (laughs) Yeah, it's odd that the Chicago Opera would. Uh, want to have an opera commissioned that is in French or in Russian, really, either way. Like, don't you think they would want to have something commissioned in English at that time? Or it was just every opera that they were watching at the time anyways was in a foreign language, so it doesn't matter. The music director that commissioned the work, he died unexpectedly, and so it was postponed. And this ended up being a big financial problem for Prokofiev because he spent a lot of time and a lot of effort writing this opera. And if it, I guess back then, if it didn't get produced, didn't get paid. Oh, dang. So when did it get finally get performed, Elspeth? That got performed in 1921, the same year as that... Um, ballet. Ballet shoot. So what happens is Prokofiev is kind of in financial ruin. His American, his solo career in America is over. And so he doesn't want to go back to Russia because he'll be seen as a failure. So he goes back to Paris mm. and reconnects with Diaghilev. And that's when um, Le Chute, not Le Chute, when Shoot actually gets its premiere performance in, in 1921. So mm. 1921 was a banner year for Prokofiev. So then what next? Well, so he's there. He's hanging out with Stravinsky. They get into a huge fight about dumb shit. 
um, <laughs> which then they make up later. Basically, like, you suck. No, you suck. And then they get into a fist fight. It doesn't matter. Did they literally get into a fist fight? I think they did. Oh, that's awesome. Because they're that's adults. Great. Right. Uh-huh. <laughs> they're, they're adult men. Um, so he, in 1923, he's mo- he moves his mother to a little town in the Bavarian Alps, and he spends about a year there writing an opera that we will be talking about later called The Fiery Angel, <laughs> which is wild. Um, <laughs> and then he gets married. He, for some reason, becomes a Christian scientist. <laughs> Wait, what? Gosh. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, bless. Prakash, mm. just it? sit is on that, that for that, a second. No, I just like want to sit end? on that for a second. <laughs> okay, so he's in. He's a Christian scientist in the Bavarian Alps. So he does a lot of composing in this time period, and in 1927 he actually is the first time he goes back to the Soviet Union mm-hmm. to do a um, a concert tour, a piano tour. So he returns to the Soviet Union. He um, moves back there, and around that time, he writes the ballet, Romeo and Juliet. He writes what he is, is perhaps his most accessible work, Peter and the Wolf. Ah, so good. Can we just listen yeah, to Yeah, absolutely. A little bit of Peter and the Wolf. Whatever you want. So the fun thing about Peter and the Wolf is that because it's designed to be like a story for children set to music, all the characters in the orchestra, all the characters in the story, which are mostly animals except for Peter and his grandfather, they all have like essentially light motifs that really represent them in the story and also they have specific instruments that are attached to them so whenever you hear the the flute you know it's the bird and whenever you hear the clarinet you know it's i think it's the duck or the cat i can't remember which one um, when you hear the bassoon it's always attached to his grandfather um the wolf has i think it's the horns that are the wolf and so it's this really charming really wonderful symphonic work that is also designed to be entertaining as a story and there's narration that's paired with it as well. Early one morning, young Peter opened the garden gate and went out into the big green meadow. up in a tree sat a little bird, one of Peter's friends. All is safe, all is still, chirped the little bird merrily.
Just then, a duck appeared behind Peter, waddling along from side to side. She was very glad Peter hadn't shut the garden gate behind him, and decided to go for a nice swim in the deep pond in the meadow. So from that period on, he traveled a lot, he composed a lot, he wrote his third symphony, which a lot of people said it's the greatest thing that, at that time, people were saying it was the greatest greatest symphony that had ever been composed. And the third symphony is actually most of the music from the Fiery Angel, because nobody would perform the Fiery Angel, (laughs) because it is... Okay. Um, we at, at this point we have to inform everybody that the reason that we're not taking a deep dive on Fiery Angel is because it'll be the episode two weeks from now. It deserves its own episode. Yes. So this is all just a giant tease. <laughs> yes. This is all a giant, giant tease. But don't stop listening because Mm-mm. it'll be important when eventually you do listen to the episode on the fiery angel so he travels around to paris they go he and his family they go back to the states for a while he's traveling around he's writing he's composing everything um is great and in 1936 he and his family permanently settle in moscow and prior to that they had just been shifting back and forth from like they'd been splitting their time between moscow and paris which sounds like a horrible trip but (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah, so they, haven't you watched Anastasia? Yeah, yeah. It's it takes terrible. forever. Although, well, they walked, that's from Saint, so like... That's from St. Petersburg, so never mind. Mm. Right. So then what's... I'm waiting for the shit to hit the fan with Prokofiev. I mean, generally, he's just doing his thing. Well, he's he's doing his thing. He sort of becomes this musical ambassador between Moscow and the United States because he's really popular in the U.S. But you have to remember at this time... Um, Stalin comes into power. Okay, so Stalin comes to power, and how does Stalin take to Prokofiev's music? Stalin doesn't like it. So does Stalin have him killed? No, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Don't apologize for that. He doesn't. He doesn't. But Stalin's secret police, you know, kidnap a bunch of his friends and his compatriots. And because Prokofiev was so popular, Stalin actually forced him to compose a piece for Stalin's 60th birthday um, called... uh, Happy birthday, Stalin. It basically basically translates to cheers, but more often it's given the English title, which is Hail to Stalin. Oh, gosh. He was was forced to, to write this piece, this sort of Stalin... Hail to Stalin. Um, Mm -hmm. And right after that, he wrote three piano sonatas, sonatas six, seven, and eight, which are widely known today as the war sonatas. Mm -hmm. Um, And musicologists say that after Prokofiev was forced to write what is basically like Stalin is uber cool and awesome and the best thing ever, (laughs) um, the, the war sonatas, six, seven, or eight, were... Prokofiev's true feelings about Stalin and his regime. So why don't we listen to that, some of that. 
So it's like coded into piano music. Right. His... How he actually felt about Stalin and the government at that time. Got so did Stalin and the government catch on to this and become suspicious? Because I feel like they were they were pretty on top of it. Oh, they didn't catch on. No. Good on you, Prokofiev. So Sonata number, number seven, which is what we should listen to. It opens with a theme based on a Robert Schumann song oh. called Vemut, which means sadness. Um, and it appears in Schumann's Lido Christ, Opus 39. And the uh, words translate to, I can sometimes sing as if I were glad, yet secretly tears well and so free my heart. Nightingales sing their song of longing from their dungeon's depth. Everyone delights, yet no one feels the pain, the deep sorrow in the song. And ironically, Sonata Number no. 7 received um, a Stalin Prize as well as, <laughs> wow. as, well as Sonata Number no. 8. So apparently Ooh, nobody caught him. that. Prokofiev is is chugging along, writing protest music that no one realizes is protest music. Um, and he decides, he'd been toying a while with the idea of writing uh, an operatic version of Tolstoy's War and Peace. Um, and around that time, he got the news of the German invasion of Russia in 1941. And because of that, he was like, I have to write this opera. Also, I'm getting the fuck out of Russia. <laughs> Again. Oh, Again. So much back and forth. Right. And this is when he went to his estranged wife and is like, you need to come with me. And she's like, no, I'm going to stay here. Oh. And so. Did not turn out well for her. But he fled. He, he fled. And he left their kids. Oh. Yikes. They had two sons and they stayed with her. But then who looked after them when, when she was in the gulag? I don't know. I don't know either. Maybe they were grown by then, because this is, he's a bit older then. 1948? Yeah, so at that point, he's like in his 50s. Still jarring for them. Right. So where did he go? Back to Paris? Back to the U.S.? So the offer he was writing, was that War and Peace? He's writing War and Peace. So after Germany attacks the Soviet Union, Prokofiev evacuates to an area called the Caucasus, which is between the Caspian Sea and the Black Sea, it's sort of 
territory that's shared by like Armenia, Russia, Latvia, okay. I think. So he he stays there. He continues to write. Um, he does come back to Russia after the war. He sort of got out of fighting twice. Twice. Yeah. Fully. Yeah. I don't know why he keeps going back to Russia though, because then there's always a reason to leave. So. I, well, it's, I, it's his yeah. homeland, I guess. Just find I your guess. happy place. So in 1948, which is the same year that his wife got arrested for espionage, I think she was arrested because she sent like money to her mother in Spain. Oh. Lame. And they were like, spy. Oh. <laughs> um, so in 1948, there was something called the Zidanov Doctrine. The main principle of the Zidanov Doctrine is basically that the only conflict that is possible in Soviet culture is the conflict between good and best, um, which means that Soviet artists, Soviet writers, and all of the intelligentsia in general had to conform to the party line to their creative works. So under this policy, any artist who failed to comply with the government's wishes uh, risked persecution. And this sort of uh, was the decree and the way of law until uh, the end of Stalin's reign in 1953. So in 1948, Prokofiev uh, was denounced along with uh, Shostakovich for the crime of formalism, described as a renunciation of the basic principles of classical music in favor of muddled, nerve-wracking sounds that turned music into cacophony. And eight of his works were banned. That sucks. And um, such was the perceived threat behind the banning of the works that even works that had avoided censure were no longer programmed. So by August of 1948, Prokofiev was in severe debt and a lot of financial straits. And what he had to do in 1948 was he had to write a letter that was read out to the Union of Composers acknowledging his, like, alleged artistic errors against the Soviet Union. Ugh. And um, this was sort of what the rest of his life was like. He only lived five more years after that, and he sort of just gave up. Oh, it's so sad. And anytime he wrote anything, the government told him to change something, he would just do it, and people would ask him about it. And he was like, I don't, who cares? Who cares? Um, And so he dies of a stroke, ironically, within an hour of Stalin dying. What? Whoa. So Stalin and Prokofiev died on the same day. Um, and I was telling Naomi earlier, there was such a huge mourning when Stalin dies in Russia in 1953 that the streets were so crowded and the buildings were so crowded that they couldn't get Prokofiev's body out to bury until three days after he died. Oh, oh gosh. But it wasn't like part of how he died like he couldn't get a doctor or whatever he like, no i think he just, he just had a, a stroke mm-hmm. yeah wow well i ended that in a is... bummer thanks everybody yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this <after> is dark. <laughs> sufficiently depressing uh but it seems Hi. like the follow-up will be a pretty funny episode it will we just sort of had to lay the groundwork i'm sorry that's pretty depressing. no 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 it's good now we know much more about Prokofiev than certainly I would have ever known. I did not go into this knowing very much about him, so I feel like, I really do feel like he's one of those composers that just, we know he's important, like, in mm-hmm. music and in music history, but he doesn't really get played that much compared to other composers. That's true. And he doesn't really get his 
do, even though I feel like other than Peter and the Wolf, people just don't really know his music because it hasn't really made it into a lot of pop culture, per se. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and he just never had, like, the the cachet of, like, Mozart or Beethoven or Bach as, like, this, like, incredible genius from antiquity, right? Right. So, it's good to learn more about him because he obviously did a ton of stuff and... Went we a ton of places and then went, went a ton of back. places. He wrote a ton of music and we don't hear it that often. And what is the name of this opera we're going to talk about? The Fiery Angel. The Fiery, <laughs> the Fiery Angel. Angel, which sounds like it's, is it kind of a shit show? Oh my God. I can't even begin to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Nope. Save it. Folks, right. if you want to hear about the Fiery Angel, you'll have to be back with us in two weeks. Or if you're listening to this episode a couple weeks after it released, then just skip on down to Fiery Angel. Just Keep binging. Just Keep binging. It. Exactly. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, in between listening to these episodes, definitely go and leave a review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Uh, also, think about subscribing to make sure you don't miss an episode. And if you really, really want to support the podcast, you could go to operaafterdark.com to check out our merch shop, or even better, go to patreon.com slash operaafterdark and support us there. We really appreciate everybody that supports what we do on this podcast. We'll look forward to being back with you next week. And until then, I'm Kyle. I'm Naomi. And I'm Elspeth. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. attention to his grandfather's warning boys like him are not afraid of wolves